My name is Dvor Chasen, and I'm a board member of the YU Medical Ethics Society. Dr. Gil Seagal, our next speaker, has many roles in medicine and law. He received a medical and law degree from Tel Aviv University, as well as a PhD in law from the University of Virginia. He currently chairs the Center for Health Law and Bioethics at Ono College in Israel and is a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. He is also a practicing surgeon at the Tel HaShomer Medical Center. Additionally, he is a member of the National Committee for Genetic Research in Humans and a member of the National Advisory Committee on Genetic Information. He specializes in biotechnology, patients' rights, and comparative medical ethics. I am honored to present our next speaker, Dr. Seagal. Just get the lights right. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. Deborah, can you hear me well? Yeah, we can hear you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. So um, I will actually um, uh, be talking about uh, something else, and that is the, uh, the way that we regulate uh, technology and biotech. I've heard the uh, previous speakers, and uh, I was very uh, impressed by the uh, ability today really to, to propel ideas from the tables of students all the way to the patient's uh, bedside. And um, in my role as both a lawyer, an academic in the legal sphere and academic in the ethical sphere, um, I'm privileged to see those bright minds at work. And, but my role here uh, is to walk you through the way we in Israel look on those ideas from an ethical perspective. So in other words, you can come up with a great idea. Just, just ask the following question. A guy comes uh, with an idea that he's gonna develop a special, a special shampoo that if you use this shampoo before intercourse, you'll have a higher chance of having boys that's the blue one. But if you use the pink one, you're going to have a higher chance of having girls uh, uh, as the result of that uh, uh, interaction. Now, he wants to do the research. Would that research be accepted by the IRB? So if you answer in the positive, that means that you don't see any ethical problem with the idea, with the concept, and with the result of the second for research. Um, I use that example because I'm uh, happy to be uh, the chairperson of the Israeli National Committee on Non-Medical Sex Selection of Embryos. So in Israel, there is a, a special process. So you see that while science can actually do, to do that today, can, science can actually today uh, uh, choose for the embryo and the gender of a child, right now we have uh, uh, put that under a scrutiny and there's a whole process to make that happen. Um, and if you want, we'll, we'll touch on this topic later on. Now, from, Israel, from Jewish to Israeli bioethics and medical law, that's a whole course semester. So uh, if that's something you're interested, make, make for the people that look into the curriculum uh, reach out to me and we can make that work. But right now, I'm just going to do a short intro to how that thing, the idea of Israeli bioethics developed. We have a project called Blue and White Bioethics. Blue and White stands for the flags 
uh, the colors of the flags of Israel. And I will try to uh, make that thing palatable, uh, 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 easy for you to understand. And I will start by the bottom line. Israel occupies a middle space between the United States and Europe in resolving ethical and legal questions that are the results of the progress in medicine and in uh, biology and, and genetics and, and, the, and the health and the, and the, health and the uh, life sciences. So there's a unique position. And as I was told, uh, I was in a conference in Europe and uh, they were discussing about um, some sort of resolutions to the stem cell debate. And suddenly the, the, the chairperson, and I was, I was just part of the audience at that point, at that uh, specific session, but then they stopped, wait a second. We talked about Germany, Belgium, UK, Australia. We need to hear what happens in Israel. Anybody from Israel here? So says, I'm from Israel. And I'll give you the, the, the Israeli perspective on stem cell research. So yeah, Israel has a particular view on, sorry, view on things. And um, while I can show you and deliberate the results, I believe that that is less important. What's more important is the underlying principles that actually dictates the end results. What's moving pieces in the Israeli health law and bioethics sphere that will make you understand uh, um, the, the reason the result came out to be the way it is. For those of you who are interested in biotech, for those of you who are interested in coming up with medical devices, so you need to understand the mindset of the Israeli regulator, the Israeli IRB, the Research Review Boards, the, um, the Ethics Committee, in order to move forward. It will be, it will be kind of useless or pointless to invest a lot of money and time and effort in a project that will never fly if you are about to move it into the Israeli, uh, uh, by, through the Israeli biotech industry. So you need to have a good understanding of what will fly and what won't. And that is the purpose of, uh, of this presentation. So uh, let's move on. Devorah, moving on, that's okay with you. All right. So uh, let's move to this uh, presentation mode. Do you see the next slide? All right. So this is Israel uh, and at daytime. And this is at night, and you see the light. All the light is coming for the Center for Health Law and Bioethics at Ono College, day and night, working on, on resolving the ethical issues that are coming with the, with the uh, serious questions that the scientists and inventors are coming up with, uh, with new ideas and how we can match their demands uh, on the one hand, but echoing the legal, ethical, social, religious, historical perspective that play in. Um, a word about Israel, I'm sure if you, all of you are familiar with, but we now have passed the 9 million uh, uh, number of in our inhabitants. Some uh, over half are what we call secular Jews with a light or non-religious uh, uh, influence. There's around less than 2 million that, uh, that um, identify as Orthodox Jews. In the 90s, a huge influx of the former Soviet 
Union, the USSR, into Israel. And again, that's a different mindset. It's a different attitude, it's a different way of thinking. And we have some 20% of the population that is Arab, Muslim, Christians, Druze, Cherks, and others. So this, just to show you a beautiful melting pot, and that's why we moved from Jewish ethics to Israeli bioethics, because yes, Judaism can, can encompass and can be a, a very important driving force, but we also have to attune to other uh, uh, influences as well. Um, on the other hand, we have the academia demography. Academia in Israel changed dramatically in the 30s to the 50s. That was very powerful European, European, sorry, influence, German, UK, France. Not anymore. In the 60s, 70s, major Americanization of our legal institutions and our medical institutions. All Israeli doctors get trained by U.S. textbooks. All the senior doctors have their fellowships in the United States. So a major influence of, uh, 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 um, from Western Europe moved into uh, influence from uh, North America, and that has shaped part of the discussion as well. Uh, and finally, Israel as a unique place, it's both by our uh, constitutional values, by the Declaration of Independence, we just celebrated Yom Ha'atzmaut uh, two days ago, so Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. So these two uh, very powerful in, uh, influences uh, will shape our uh, resolutions. So what are the interests and values in Israel? So if you ask an American, if you ask a European person what will be his values, you will get a somewhat different layout. This is the layout that Israeli society holds strong to. And this is shared by all sectors in Israel. Even though we have this amalgam of ideas, this is something that is very powerful in Israel. And the first interest, and above all other interests, above all, is the sanctity of life and human dignity. Below that, we'll have other interests, but I want to put this very strongly. Sanctity of life and human dignity is number one. Why, how do you see that? Well, uh, just to show you the uh, famous uh, fight over the um, hunger strikes of uh, uh, prisoners, some of them Palestinians, some of them uh, uh, terrorists, some of them non-Palestinian, non, non, uh, uh, you know, but still come up with the idea. They're doing a hunger strike. And the question was, can the state treat them once they pass out? We don't touch them. We don't abuse their privacy, the, human the body integrity. But once they pass out, can you treat them? Uh, some of them, I don't know if you can he read Hebrew, but this guy says, I'm fasting for 82 days. Those of you who know medicine know that this is completely impossible. So a, a hidden camera shows this guy taking a small snack before going to the camera saying, well, I'm a, on a hunger strike and so on and so forth, so of course. But nevertheless, this was deemed by the Knesset, by, parliament, by the parliament and both by the Supreme Court of Israel as non-acceptable um, strike because sanctity of life is the number one principle. So yes, 
once you pass out and you can no longer object, the state will save your life even against your expressed wishes. Why is that? There's peer pressure in those prisons. They're getting the wrong incentives. And all those ideas about autonomy would surrender to the greater idea of a retroactive consent. And you see the guy's response once he was awakened. There's no question that he is clearly happy that his life has been saved. So according to the Israeli Patients' Rights Law, clause number 15, if we can anticipate that after we save the person's life, he will be grateful, he will be um, in a position uh, to acknowledge a post-retroactive consent, it is a completely acceptable to treat him against his uh, expressed wishes. And we do that today in many options. So for example, if somebody commit, commits suicide, he will be treated. Uh, if someone uh, is now in a position where a minor procedure can save his life, that can be done. Three doctors need to sign that this is a minor procedure and his life can be saved. On the other hand, make no mistake, you cannot force care on a terminally ill patient. You cannot force care that is futile, that will not change the prognosis of the patient. So we have this utility balance. And if you want, we can talk about that later on in, in the session of, uh, on the Q&A session. So sanctive life, human dignity is important. So important that yes, because the idea that we can save life is so important. Israel was the pioneer into accepting the idea of, for example, stem cell research, because stem cell research was regarded as a way to save lives while preserving dignity, because according to Jewish law and according to Muslim law, life does not begin at conception. Life begins later on. So if the stem cells are harvested at an earlier stage, we do not defy human dignity and we have the chance of saving lives. So the imperative of saving life is a, is a very powerful way to propel, to push forward new ideas of patient care and treatment um, that will abolish suffering and unnecessary death. Below the sanctity of life and human dignity, we can talk about autonomy and self, the right for self-determination, which clearly, like in the Western uh, idea, in the Western world, uh, a patient has a right to control his life. He's a master for his decisions and autonomy dictates that we should respect that as long he, as he does not harm others. Stuart Mill's famous uh, ideas about the harm principle and we saw that very nicely in the COVID pandemic, where we were limiting people's autonomy for the greater good. So yeah, it's okay if you wanna go without a mask, but we need to wear a mask because that can harm others. So the ability to curtail the autonomy principle based on the greater good is something very important. Um, and again, we'll talk about it later on uh, if we have enough time. The uh, third principle that is very relevant to the session is the idea that the, there's a relig religious, but also social right slash obligation that 
that tackles the procreation. It's a concept that Israel has very strongly adhered to. Israel is the number one country in the world, uh, and we're sorry, one number one country in the Western world uh, of children per family. Right now we're into the 3.2 number and we observant uh, families, the number is, is, is around the 4.6. So we see this very strong social idea that having kids is fun. Israel is the number one country with IVF clinics per capita, the number one country in the world with IVF cycle. We had a, the previous speaker was an OBGYN, so you can attest to that. So it's a, it's a, it's a thing, but why am I bringing this to the biotech of this session here? For one reason, everything that deals with procreation will be looked on favorably in Israel. Because if it's there to help, if it's there to take away the issue of infertility, very interesting to this community. And discussion about Dori Sharim, I'm sure you've heard about the legal ethical issues with Dori Sharim, is a fine example for that. Because this is a way to have a safer procreation process so premarital genetic screening is basically taking the, the, the power the might of genetics and making it work for the procreation right or uh, a religious obligation and these are the numbers this guy doesn't seem too happy but basically procreation is a fun thing in israel yeladim simcha. that's the famous quote we use in, in israel and i use this picture to show you only in Israel. I gave a lecture uh, the other day at Kiat Ono uh, for the uh, speech therapist. You know, I'm an ENT surgeon, so they asked me to speak about the ethical aspects of uh, uh, deaf, deafness and uh, uh, speech problems. So I gave them a whole day of uh, course, and they asked me, can, can, can a pregnant woman or can, can a, a new, uh, new mothers bring their children for breastfeeding? I said, sure. No, I thought one, two, this is how the class looked like. Now you cannot see that, not in Norway, not in France, not, not even in Massachusetts, I believe. So it's very different. It's very unique to the Israeli population. And again, you see, this is a mixture. This is religion, non-religion people. Uh, there's Muslim students. This is part of our society. And, and everybody is lenient about it. It's okay to bring a child to school. It's okay to breastfeed during class and so on and so forth. The fourth point that I want to point out is the idea of the community, the importance of, the, of others, the greater good. Now, COVID pushed that stronger, but before the COVID, when I was speaking to the American audience or even European audience, it didn't really echo. What would you mean the greater good? So I told them about Israel and the wars and terror and the the need uh, for Gmilut Hasadim and Tzedakah and, oh, and the kibbutz. These are all ideas that come from, from the notion that me as an individual is one layer, but there's another layer that is very, very important. I think now after COVID, people get it, the importance of the community. But in Israel, the community is a very strong thing. So when I'm talking about bioethics and healthcare law, the idea that our ideas will either help or might decrease the, co the cohesion of, uh, of the greater good as something to be uh, uh, thought about. For example, when we were discussing the Israeli national health system and the national health 
uh, insurance. Well, in Israel, you pay per your monthly income, 4.8% of your monthly income. So that's how you pay. But what do you get? You get as much as you need. So there's a complete attachment between what you pay and what you get for. And we, as, we, we, we um, see this as a cross-subsidiary and an idea of yeah, Tzedakah. We all chip in for uh, others who are in a greater need. And this is shared by both religious and non-religious uh, 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 part of the society. Again, remember, Jews, non-Jews, all in the same, uh, in the same uh, boat. And finally, the, the, the last point I'd like to discuss is enhancing science and technology. Israel, as you must have heard, is uh, uh, we call it a startup nation and goes both IT, but also medical and life sciences uh, startups and, 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 and the ecosystem here. And this is because Israelis are keen on technology and science. Now you can ask yourself why? What's what's uh what's go what's at work here? Why Israelis are so keen on science and technology? So you can find extrinsic and intrinsic value to science and technology, and you can you think about the um, the results of the uh, uh, results of our not so bright past in the last two thousand years, repeated pogrom bloodshed, uh, the Holocaust, of course. So there's a physical, physical existentialism aspect to it because science is, in a way, another tool to guarantee the progress and the sustainability of the Jewish people. And therefore, it's highly respected and traditionally auto-regulated. Very important. Are, are we going to let scientists uh, do their own thing? And, or is there a tension between society and science? If you look into Europe, you see a lot of clashes between scientists and society. If you look at the United States, they burn clinics that do abortions. They uh, cut on funding for stem cell research. All that is not at all part of the Israeli discourse. We don't have that at all. Usually science and society are more or less aligned and there's a lot of trust between the scientists and doctors and medicine on the one hand and society and social institutions. So that's a good thing. Also pushing the value of science and technology is the consumer attitude coming from the United States, most powerfully. Yes, we like gadgets, it's cool, but it's also making our lives better and it's okay. In uh, Jewish philosophy, there's no such thing as, hmm, Front upon, front upon, are you playing God concept? There's no such thing. Yes, we are here to improve creation. It's part of the Jewish heritage. And that's why we do Brit Milah, that's why we do the bris on the eighth day, because God could have made us already with the Brit Milah. But God says, no, I'm doing the world for one, and you will make it even a better. So it's okay. We have to keep on the religious tenets. Nevertheless, playing God is not an issue in Jewish philosophy. And you see, if you read Rabbi Tender's uh, 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 Zatzal books and Rabbi Steinberg's and my papers, Ravdil, you can find the idea there very powerfully. And finally, Torah 
is the prime education uh, mission, and we highly, highly uh, regard people that are in the learning business. So scientists, science is part of the ethos of learning and education. So that's for that's why biotech people, scientists, scientists will not meet resistance usually in Israel. I think that I have five minutes to, to finish before Devorah kills me. So uh, I will just put on the table the following slide. Devorah, do you see the slide between the US and Europe? Do you see the slide? Yeah, wait, did you change it? I just changed. What, what slide do you see right now? What do you see right now? The gray slide. Principles yeah, of bioethics. Okay, so US and, and Europe. Good, so you see it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you see, look at the American ideas of bioethics. Look into the European ideas of bioethics. So in America, autonomy, individualism, very important. Beneficence, you need to do good to your patients. Non-maleficence, don't do bad to your patients. And justice, share the burdens and the, and the benefits evenly. Supposedly, this is all coming from a, a bishop and children's books of bioethics. The sixth edition just came out, uh, I believe, or should come out in these days. The European, they're okay with some of the principles, but they put higher the human dignity, solidarity, which was completely lacking for the principle of American principle of bioethics, and the precaution principle. I want to spend five minutes on that. The precaution principle says that not everything that is new is a good thing. So, you know, European will still cherish chairs from Louis XIV, as opposed to the high-tech chairs that we can sell uh, uh, in, 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 in Manhattan, right? So the precaution says we want to make sure that your new ideas will not create a major problem to the ecosystem, to the environment, so and so forth. So the, the Greenpeace ideas, the, the Greens is a very powerful movement in Europe, not so powerful in the United States until uh, recent years, maybe California, the West Coast is pushing that, but that wasn't that powerful in Europe. For years and years, they're really concerned about the environment and the precaution principle. Are we are our interventions harmful, harmful to the world? And this Jewish biophysics lately uh, are kind of resonant with that with the Tikkun Olam idea, which is important. But this, as you see, these are the principles in Europe and the USA. Well, Israel occupies, like I said, an interim uh, uh, position in that stance. So how does Jewish law comes into place? So contemporary rabbis repeatedly endorse new technologies as long as they meet the standards that I put forth before. The collective action that enhances welfare are highly appraised. So for example, Doris Sharim is a beautiful project envisioned and executed by a non-scientist scientist person, Rabbi Eckstein, nevertheless, a very wonderful tool to, for the collective greater good using, like I said, high-end genetic technology. The secretary of human body does not include genetic information, so it's okay to use genetic information, for, for example, the Doris Sharon project, uh, uh, to uh, create a safer place for procreation, marriages, and so on and so forth. And the betterment of creation, like I said, it's a merit to squish, no problem with playing God. Finally, about Jewish law and bioethics, 
the world's image of Judaism is a crucial parameter. When the cloning debate became a real debate after Dori Vashiv and Stelzer research, when rabbis were consulted, should we endorse this technology? One of the questions they asked after going through all Jewish law and Jewish philosophy and Jewish ideas was, wait a second, but what is the rest of the world thinking? Because we have to make sure that we don't have Chilul Hashem, that with our resolutions, we don't, we don't come up with something that will give the nations a reason to criticize Judaism and in that sense call Chilul Hashem. So for example, with human cloning, even though by halacha, it's probably okay. The rabbi says, for the time being, we should not move on with that because this might call, might create a, a, a bad image of Judaism in today's very transparent, connective world. So hold and wait. So for stem cell research, UK said, okay, ah, good for us. We're not the only one doing that. So there is this, this cautionary perspective, not because intrinsic problems, but from extrinsic, like I said, through Hashem issues. Uh, um, I think I'm going to stop. I'm going to run through. I've, I had some points I want to start, but we'll just keep this for uh, another time. And I will just come up with a final idea um, to, to wrap my, my uh, discussion on stem cell research. Why was Israel a pioneer in stem cell research? For the following reason. Israel was a pioneer on the stem cell research for the following reason. What is it? Okay. Sanctity of life, clearly something that can be gained. It fits very nicely to the knowledge science aspect of promoting these ideas in Israel society. It clearly helps the procreation quest. It reflects the autonomy of patients trying to, are willing to donate the samples, willing to allow the research to, to, to move forward on the one hand and allowing those patients who would like to make use of it, uh, their chance of having a better, healthier life. And like we said, knowledge and science and betterment of creation on both sides of the autonomy sphere. And autonomy, remember also important, the autonomy of researchers, that's something we also cherish in Israel. So with these final words, I wanna thank you all for taking time to listen to my talk. I wanna thank the organizers for letting me voice my, uh, my ideas. And if you have interested in that, blue and white bioethics, uh, it can be found online. I'm at the Ono College. Uh, and my uh, emails can be easily found uh, online, Siegel, S-I-E-G-I-L. And I'm more than happy. You have one minute to take some questions from the audience if you want to. Thank you. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Jonah Tripp and I am uh, the Vice President of the YU Medical Ethics Society. Thank you all for joining this conference today and thank you Dr. Seagal so much for taking the time to uh, share your important words with us. 
Our next speaker is Rav Yosef Tzvi Rimon, an internationally acclaimed posek author and educator. Rav Rimon is the chief rabbi of Gush Etzion and the Rav of Alon Shvot South. Rav Rimon is also the Rosh Hashiva of Lev Academic Center and the founder and chairman of Sulamot and Laofek, dedicated to providing proper education and supplying job security throughout Israel. Through leadership, grace, and wisdom, Rav Rimon has and continues to play a pivotal role in shaping the contemporary Jewish world. We want to thank Rav Rimon for his time and for his continued effort towards building a healthier and brighter Jewish future in our Jewish homeland. Shalom lechulam. I'm very happy to be here with you. Can you hear me properly? Uh, it's uh, so uh, special that although all the bad things of COVID, at least we learned that we can be together from far away, lots of people together, and uh, it's exciting that we can speak all together uh, in a, such a, a beautiful uh, system. I would like to speak today on artificial meat and maybe to focus also on artificial chicken. I'll uh, share PowerPoint. Okay, can, can you see the PowerPoint? So we are working in Madato uh, Ratecha. We are working on lots of uh, things that connected to science, but uh, things of the future, such as AI, such as autonomic cars, and also artificial uh, meat. And... Uh, I would like to share short. I won't be able, it would be hours to see all the sugiyot. If you want to see them, we wrote uh, a booklet that uh, brings all the sugiyot, all the places in the Gemara, Rishoinim, Achroinim, that maybe can touch our subject. And you can see them uh, also in our website and also in this booklet. And I'll try just to focus on the main issues of artificial meat. Also, today, it's not so easy to eat meat. There, there are lots of processes, lots of stages that we have to pass till we eat the meat. We have to find the right shoichet, and we need to check the knives, and the shechita should be in the right uh, system, and we have uh, to check that there's no treif in the lamp, in other places. Lots of uh, things that are are complicated uh, also today. But the world is concerned because the world is going to grow and it seems that in a few years will be a big problem to give meat for everyone and it will be very expensive 
and also because of Tsar Vali Chaim and other issues. So already uh, years ago, beginning in Holland and other places, uh, the world tries to create artificial meat. In artificial meat, we have biopsy that uh, we take um, something, we'll speak on it uh, in a minute, but a uh, small quantity from the animal. From this, we have to take the stem uh, seals, in Hebrew, ta'ei geza, we put, we put them in bioreactor and we grow it in the same system that it would grow in our body. We grow it uh, in a lab. And in the end, we have meat. There are a few questions that we have to deal in our subject. First question, I'm reading now from the right to the left. First question is, uh, can we take it from a non-kosher animal? We have a rule, if we take something from a tame, from a non-kosher animal, so it's not kosher. In our case, we will say that maybe it's so small you can't see it in your eyes. Maybe we take it in systems that we say that uh, uh, it's not at all a part of the animal. Can it be okay? The other question is when we take it out also from a kosher animal, if we take it when the animal is alive, we have a question of ever minachai. We mustn't take something from the animal when it's alive. So can we take, also if we take a kosher animal, can we do this biopsy from the animal when it's uh, alive? The third issue is, if we are able to do it in some systems, is it fleshic or maybe, maybe pav? Can you have um, together cheese and meat from artificial meat to eat it together? We have just to explain that although the system to create the meat is by lab and not natural, but the result in the end, should be exactly one by one. It's not like buying today something that you buy that is very similar, the same taste of meat. Here we are speaking on something that one by one, exactly the same genes, everything exactly like regular meat. And uh, is it part or maybe, no, fleshy. So this is another question. And another question is, 
when you take the stem steel, stem steels, you are putting it, as I said before, in a bioreactor. But when you put it in, you have something that it grows with it. Usually, they were using serum that it's from blood. And there were lots of discussions. Maybe because of this, the meat won't be kosher. Lots of articles were written on this uh, artificial meat and they were dealing with this serum, but the world changed. And especially because of Israelis that invented something, but in the end, the world changed. And today, they are using uh, not serum, but a plant that uh, based uh, notorious something that is from uh, not not from the chai but from tzmachim uh, something that is vegetarian and this problem does not does not exist anymore. There are other questions here on Hametz, Mepesach, other things that we have to deal, if it's in Israel, do we have questions of Tumoto Masrot, but this is not a problem. This is something that we know that today this problem is solved. It seems that it should be very easy to create this meat Because you can take a kosher animal. You can do shechita. Most kosher shechita that you would like to do. And then, do the biopsy. Do it straight away. We can do it in the right way that it will be uh, uh, useful. But uh, it's not easy. In the world, there are lots of places that they want something to be just vegetarian, nothing that we kill any animal. And uh, lots of places of Tsar Balichaim and other organizations in the world, they say, no, we want something that no Behema was, uh, was killed, Shechita. The kosher uh, organization would say, What do you care? You are showing at one deima, and from this you can give uh, supply meat for years. But still, this is a question that it's not so easy because the companies want to be want to, to, to do something that is good for everyone, and they would like to do it from something before Shita. So is it okay? And we have a few systems how to create this meat. I'm reading now from the left one. So one system will be biopsy from a living animal. And this is the system that was the most popular in the world till lately. And here... Uh, we have to ask ourselves, is it okay? According to Alaha. There is another system 
that, as I said, that uh, maybe kosher, Jewish people, kosher would prefer it, that it, this will be from animal after shechita. Maybe there's another suggestion to do it in Ben Pakua. See, uh, in the bottom, I won't speak now on Ben Pakua. It's not to do dozens of Ben Pakua. We need one. And from this, we create those things. Maybe it's another solution that maybe can be uh, easier. I'm going now to the middle slide. There is another system of shtifat ubarim, embryonic uh, extrication, and the shtifat ubarim, this is something that you do in the first days when the animal is pregnant in the beginning, beginning, the, the, the first few days. And we have to ask ourselves, maybe it's easier. Maybe when you do it in the beginning, not like it was years ago, straight in the beginning, just from the, uh, like the water of the beginning, beginning of the, uh, when the, the animal is pregnant, maybe it's okay. We have another system that in Israel, Tnuva is doing it and other places uh, to do it from uh, placenta, shilia. And this is easier. This is easier because this is something that, uh, according to lots of system, we can eat it. It's much easier system. And there is another very popular system today, a new one, quite new one, to do it from an egg, fertilized egg. And in a minute, we'll have to deal with it. In Israel, there's a big company that is uh, dealing with artificial chicken. And they do it from an egg. Is it okay? We have another system. Another system that years ago, Rav Tendler wrote about it also before anyone thought to do it uh, in reality. And uh, this is to, uh, to use a uh, Permitted animal, uh, permitted animal uh, body parts, and this system can be all by using parts of the animal that maybe they don't need shita, maybe they're okay to take uh, hair, uh, to take. Uh, other things, nails, to take things that maybe don't need shechita. But we have also another system, and this system takes uh, the genes and does a reprogram. You can take a, a gene from milk, you can do reprogram, like restart, and bring it back to be tazera, to be stem seals. 
and then you can make from it meat. You'll make meat for milk. You'll take milk, you'll take the gene, you'll do a reprogram, and then you'll create from this meat. Is it kosher? Is it meat? Pav? And uh, today, although we have things that we can create it, but the world is not ready yet. And there uh, are other reasons that the world is more frightened of this uh, system. So meanwhile, this is not a system. And the most popular systems are the system that I said uh, before, and uh, the system of uh, uh, embryonic extraction, that this is a very famous system that works now in Rehovot, in Israel and other places in the world. And also, as I said, that Nuva works with the uh, uh, placenta. But I want to deal now with the new system of the egg, of fertilized egg. Before we, we go to the egg, I just want to say shortly that the main questions about the other systems that uh, we said right now, so I'm reading here from uh, the left, there are systems that think that uh, that this is something that uh, is not allowed, is not permitted, because what we are doing is we are taking something from the body of the animal, we are taking it when it's alive, and we are doing exactly the same like Kodosh Bochu did. He did it naturally in the body of the animal, and we are doing, we are doing it in a lab. And maybe it's, if it's not kosher, if you took it from a live animal, also if it's a kosher animal. So then also, if it's something that you can't see, that you did exactly the same thing what you did in, in a lab, and maybe because of this, it uh, won't be permitted. And this is an option, and the Aposkim that think in this way, and the Asugyo that maybe we can explain in this way, but there are other systems that they say, no, I'm reading in the middle now. It's Maya the Alma. Because it's something that you can't see in your eyes. It's from the beginning, the first 40 days, the Gemara says it's like Maya the Alma, like mere water. Something like this, it's like water and it's not at all a something that uh, meat, it's something like water. Maybe another option that it's perish be'alma, it's something that it's not at all a part of the animal. And we have Sugen, the Gemara on this, Chalera uh, Chmuta, it doesn't matter now. Maybe because all the process is like uh, a miracle uh, process, it's not natural. Maybe because of this, it doesn't consider it all as meat. All this is connected to the system that we spoke before of uh, shtifatu varim, of embryonic 
uh, extraction. But as I said, we have today big company in Israel that works on chicken. And they create it from an egg. It's very interesting, you know, articles that were written two years ago sometimes are not... Uh, uh, you can't use them anymore because things change so quickly. How do they do it from an egg today? What do they do from an egg? So you can see here, they take from the egg, they take in the first or second day, they take uh, ta, also uh, like a stem scissors that I said before, Uh, in the beginning and when they take it now everything here is yellow it's an egg that can grow to a chick but they take it from the yellow of the egg this is no problem you can eat it this is no problem but they can create the meat in this system no problem but it won't have the taste of the meat. And because of this, they need to add also, in the third day, also another uh, stem seals. And this is from the red of the egg. We mustn't eat the red of the egg because the red of the egg is like the beginning of the chick. But they take the white from the red. Maybe when you take the white from the red, maybe this is okay. Maybe this is permitted. Now, I have to say, if we would have time, we would go over all the sugiot, we would read all the uh, systems of uh, explaining the, the Gemara. And as, as I said before, this we wrote already in, uh, in our booklet, so I won't repeat it. But I want to tell you, when you read our booklet, when you read all the sources that I just mentioned, you can see that every source, you can explain also to Hater and also to Isu. Everyone you can explain, you can say, okay, maybe this is something that we can see that it will be mutar and it will be okay uh, because we'll say, as I said before, it's Maya Be'alma, it's the beginning of the first 40 days, and maybe it has a beetle, uh, and uh, as I said, maybe it's not a part of the, the meat. Lots of things that we can say in those sugiot. But each sugiya we can explain also to the other way. And we can, we can say, no, it's a, although it's the first 40 days, what does it matter? It's a part of the animal. Also, if we say it's Maya Be'alma, but it's a part of the animal. 
and we'll say it's not connected at all to Bitul. In Bitul, uh, you take uh, one uh, seals, stem seals, you take it, and you will put it in lots of others, and then you say, okay, this is Batel Berov. But in our case, you don't take one, and you say it's Batel. You take one, and the same thing that you take divides to two and grows from this more and more and more and more from the first one. So maybe it's not Bitul at all. And maybe because the result is like meat, we have to consider it exactly like meat. All the sugyot really are giving us directions, but because it's a new thing, so new, you can explain it also this way and also that way. So what do you do? So first of all, I have to say there are people that are afraid all the time when we have new solutions, new science solutions, they say, oh, what we will do? I'm not afraid. I believe in the way of Rav Kook, that thinks that, that, thinks that the world of Kodosh Baruch of Hashem all the time is in a process. It gets worse, better and not worse. When we have lots of new tools, we have to lead them in the right way. If we won't do it, the same tools, you can destroy the world. And we know in our world, lots of things, the tools that they can save lives of people can also destroy lives. But we, we believe that in the end, all those things are bringing the world to a better way. And I believe that also this artificial meat would bring us and the world to a better uh, uh, place. Rav Kook spoke about the future that once the world won't kill animals anymore. They'll eat vegetarian once, once, once. We know that today when we do shechita, it's okay. It's musar, it's uh, morality. If the Torah told us it's okay, it's okay. But if we have the ability that the world could eat meat and won't need to kill animals, wow, of course it's good. And also according to halacha, let's say that you take something after shechita in the best way, so it will be much better than today. Because today you can do shechita of mehadrin, but lots of places are not in the standard of mehadrin. They are okay because it's very complicated and you can't decide that uh, half of the meat you chuck out. It's complicated and you say, okay, and this will be making, and this will be making like this. You can create one, uh, the first one that will be mehadrin after shechita of all the systems of OU and Badat Saida, Haredit and Rav Lando and Ravanut, everyone. And from this to, to create meat for 10 years. So we have the ability to do things that will be much better also according to Allah. But maybe also if we do it from biopsy, maybe in the beginning of the first days of the animal, or we will do it from the egg, as I said before, maybe it is okay. We are not sure. We have all the time to check and to try to find the best solutions. And the egg is a, a solution that maybe can be okay. And maybe other solutions that, uh, that we said before that uh, can be uh, okay. Maybe the uh, placenta, maybe, maybe other things. And uh, maybe I'll take the... Let's take it off. 
doesn't make them out. I just want to take stop sharing, okay? And uh, I think that we have to know how to deal in a suffix. You know, in the articles, you can see half of the revised that are certain that the meat is kosher, it's pav, no problem. The other half, they say, no, it's no kosher. No. And really, we can't prove. It's not uh, black and white. We can't really prove. And on one end, we have to try all the time, the time to find the best solutions. And mehadrin in meat, glat, mehadrin, let's say, glat will be just something or after shechita or maybe from other solutions that I said before that maybe can be the best. But maybe will be other solutions that will say that maybe they can be okay and better, maybe the, better even the, from the alternative today of lots of places of, of meat. In Israel, we have few levels. Not of mehadrin, but maybe of regular meat. And maybe this can be something that uh, can be uh, okay. I don't think that ever will allow to eat non-kosher meat, will never allow to eat chazer or something like this. Someone came to me, a journalist, and said, why, what's the problem? Also, also if it looks like chazer, uh, what's the problem? If it's not meat, it's not meat. I told him, you know what? If you say it's no problem and the result doesn't matter, are you ready that we'll uh, serve meat from Human being. Also, this is not meat, but we'll take from human being and we'll serve schnitzel, we'll serve meat. He said, okay, let me think about it. It's not so easy, and I don't think that those things will be ever permitted. We have to think, if we consider it as meat of pav, I don't think that ever will allow to cook artificial meat with milk. But if we'll say it's suffix, so maybe we'll say we don't allow to cook it with meat, and maybe not to eat it with meat, but maybe we consider it like fish. That we'll say, okay, maybe afterwards you can have uh, uh, milchik. Maybe this can be something that can be okay. And I think that we'll have to deal with this suvia also in anava, that we have a suffix, that we are not sure. Not everything, and if we're not sure, so then we say, okay, we can't take a risk. We can't take a risk. If we're not sure, we can't take a risk, and we have in the Oraisa to know we are Mahmir, and especially in the all the Mehadrin, especially in all the Mehadrin, to say we are taking now just something that we are certain that this is 100% with no Sfekot. But if we are not, we are not sure 100%, we say, okay, maybe there are things that will be suffect the Rabbanan, maybe those things will, will allow in other kashrus that maybe it's better than the alternative today. There are things that we'll have to deal with them. And in the bottom line, I say, we mustn't be afraid. We have to know the world of Kodesh Vohu is all the time uh, leading us to, to a better world. So we won't be afraid. We'll be careful when you deal with Zalach, you do it carefully. But not panics. We know we're in a, a, a good way. We'll do it in the right way. I see uh, Rav Genek here 
that is going to speak and stand now also on, uh, or you spoke before, I don't know, uh, on this subject. And I know, and I know also how the OU takes it so seriously and does, and Bezrat uh, Hashem, together, Am Israel, all the rabbis that did Kashus in the serious way will succeed to find the right way also to do the high average of Mehadrin and maybe also the basic things for uh, other people. There are things that we permitted, but there are things we won't allow. Bezrat Hashem, that uh, will succeed together to eat the best kosher meat, but also to keep and to bring the world all the time to be better and better. Thank you so much, Rev. Ramon, for joining us all the way from Israel and for sharing your insights with us. We really appreciate it. My name is Liba Weiss, and I am the Vice President of the YU Medical Ethics Society. For our final speaker, we have this chus of hearing from one of our Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Menachem Ganak. Rabbi Ganak currently serves as the CEO of Kasharus at the OU, as well as the Rav of Congregation Shomer Amuna in Inglewood, New Jersey. In addition to being a guiding light for many Simicha students at Ritz and Turo, Rabbi Ganak is also the author of numerous books on Halacha and Hashkafa. It is now my pleasure to call upon Rabbi Ganak. Thank you very much, Liva. And I'm, it's for, for me, it's a real pleasure to be able to follow Rabbi Rumon, who is really one of the extraordinary models for our community in terms of what a Rav should be, his, both in terms of his depth in Halacha, but starting the beginning of his career even in terms of his concern for every Jew and not just be concerned, but his active involvement. Um, and it's it really, it's what he's done is just extraordinary. So I'm actually um, going to speaking about the same similar topic. Uh, sometimes come to different conclusions, but we've been, we have been communicating about this as well. So let me just begin why this is so important. Um, when we slaughter, at least, for example, for the OU Shechita, we average about a 40% kosher rate. Um, um, and 60% goes into the non-kosher market. And the 40% kosher rate is only giving you the um, half the animal because we, in general, don't use the chelik the, the hindquarters, Many communities don't use it because there's an issue of chaylev and kiranosha. So we're really taking away 20% of the animal. If we could develop this technology, which Rabbi Ramon has, um, you know, delineated, we would conceptually get 100% kosher rate because we would take an animal and uh, we would only use an animal that's, you know, glut, 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 completely kosher. We would take the stem cells from the forequarter, from the front, ignoring the hindquarter and that which would be, you know, the subsequent generations of these, um, of these um, stem cells would produce 100% kosher meat. So it, 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 the, the advantage is on several le- levels. First of all, the economic advantage in terms of the cost of kosher. Kosher is actually, you know, non-kosher meat is much cheaper than kosher meat. Um, and that there are lots of reasons for that, but for simply non-kosher has the economy of scale. I've also delineated for you just now the, um, you know, the economics of it to only using 20%. So that would have a very positive inca- impact on the kosher consumer. 
the other thing is more generally, you know, cattle produces a, has a significant carbon footprint, um, and this would limit the amount of cattle that had to be used in terms of producing meat. Um, so, in terms of climate change and and global warming, it is a has a very positive impact. So, as Rabbi Ramon, you know, discussed the technology, what essentially what they do is they take a a stem cells from an animal and they propagate it in, you know, first in a in a um, laboratory environment and then ultimately as it grows in an industrial environment. The thing that I've noticed, we've been speaking to various companies, but all the companies we end up talking to, whether they're in Silicon Valley in California or they're in Israel, you know, the technology and the people we're dealing with are Jewish, often Israeli scientists, um, which just tells us in general where Israel is in terms of growth of technology and how the world owes so much to that, you know, to what Israel is doing. In so, so, so many areas. But, so let's talk for a moment about the status of, um, of, um, of, of these stem cells. Well, as Rabbi Ramon mentioned, you can't just take stem cells from a non-kosher animal or for some people who suggested from a chazan. Because we have a general principle, yotzim also also that which is derived from something that's not kosher is itself not kosher. And then there are also issues, as he mentions, avim and achai. The gemara, for example, even milk, which is derived, of course, from cattle, um, from a cow, it, the milk itself would not be permitted. It might fall under the category of avim and achai, were it not for a special pasuk, eretz tavas cholavudvash, that tells us that cholav is 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 permitted, is mutter. So. Um, so I let's think about just a few topics. One topic is: Do we categorize these? Let's say we we go ahead with this. Um, is it to be considered pav, or is it considered meat? So, um, Rabbi. Uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Weiss, Rabbi Usher Weiss, was of the opinion that this should be considered fallacious. Because he says, you know, as he said, if it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's a duck. And of course, if you were to analyze this, the synthetic meat, so-called synthetic meat or clean meat as it's called, its DNA is exactly the same as regular meat. And therefore, it, it has all the properties of meat. So he thought this is, it's considered meat. Rabbi Schechter thought that that this, that it's only fleshix midrabon. In other words, since it's not, an, it didn't come from the, you know, the normal source, maybe an animal that, that we slaughtered, but it's been transformed through the, um, through this process, that that not, might not be bosom idiraisa, but he thought it's not just an issue of maris iron. He thought that this would be considered like bosom midrabon, namely like psal ofrachov. Like of, for example, poultry, Chazal considered it midrabonon to be fleshics, and um, therefore you can't you can't eat milk right after um, you eat uh, chicken. So this would have the exact same status. So it would be not if we were cooked with milk midiraisa, but it would be midrabonon. 
um, so in terms of relevant sources, um, the Gemara tells us in 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 Menachos that Chitin has a question about um, wheat that came from 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 the clouds. Um, so Toysa is different terms what the Gemara means. What Toysa says that we're talking about that it's they came derechnes miraculously, and and the Gemara has a question whether this is this this wheat can be used in Moshevosechem for um, um, whether this meat can be used. It's not excuse me. This uh, these chitim, this wheat can be used for the shtei halechem. It's considered miboshvoseichem, but it's the only issue is because it has to come from Yisrael. But apparently, the, everybody considers it to be chitim in terms of what it is. So, and similarly, we have a similar gemara. The gemara tells us in Sanhedrin that Reb Shimon ben Chalafta was Avika Ozel Uchi is walking Pogbo Hanach. I was just said the Havika Nami Laape. These there were these lions roaring. Ama Hakfirim Shoagim Lateref, Nachisule Tarte Amtasa, Chada Chluva Chada Shavkua. Aisra Aslabe Melza Boyle, Dava Tomahuze, O Dava Tor. Amala ain't Dava Tomahuze, O Dava Tor. In other words, they, they, you know, he was sort of saved by this meat that came down from the Shemayim. Um, um, and and so the, in the base medrash they had a discussion whether this meat is kosher or not. But what, but you see that nonetheless, the more, even though it came derech neis from the Shemayim, it was still considered it was still considered um, bossa. Um, so Usher wife quotes these gemaras. You see that even if it's miraculously developed, min Shemayim that it's still considered bossa since it has all the properties of bossa, even though it wasn't generated from coming from, you know, a natural source from, any, from the animal. Um, I, I would also s- cite the Shaloha Kodesh quotes that Yosef HaTzadik, when he saw the Shvotim eating Avim and Achai, you know, that's what, and he told this to his father, to, to Yaakov, um, but Yosef didn't know that this, this, um, that meat that they were eating was created from the Sefer Yitzira miraculously, and therefore it's mutter. So you see, once again, if it's created through the Sefer Yitzira, through some, you know, miraculously, that it's, it's not called Eva Minachai. Um, you know, I'll just, I should just, just cite, cite one more source relative to this, one that many of you may know, that they say in the name of Abchaim Salvechik, the, Sweet Pesach Frank quotes this, others quoted, Rabbi Zevin quotes it in the Sefer, that Rabbi Chaim said that what was, you know, the Beis Yosef asked one of the most famous questions, why is the Hanukkah eight days? After all, the miracle was only um, the last seven days, the first day, there was enough oil to be lit. So Rabbi Chaim said that what happened was it only, the miracle was each day that it didn't burn all the way down, that it only used one eighth of the oil. Um, and what normally would have naturally would have required eight times that amount of oil. And Rukhaim says it, it couldn't be that it was simply repropagated nace, you know, shemen, 
because what's required is Shemin Zayas, and Shemin Shonais is not called Shemin Zayas. Um, um, so, um, so, so in terms of what its status is, is it is it Fleshik Midirash Midrabanan? So the OU has taken the position that we're going to consider it as this, you know, this develops, that we would consider it meat, Midiraisa, and therefore all the stringencies related to that, and also in terms of the Hashkocha that would be required, since it's Bosa, would require Shachunpi Bosash in this island, Shachunpi Bosash in this island in Ha'ayin, that it will be, um, it will require Mashkir Tmidi at, at all times. But I spoke to Osher Weiss about a, I mean, one issue that I, I'd like to share with you. And then I want to get back to uh, what uh, Rav Mon spoke about, about Maya Ba'alma. But this is the, um, this is based on the Psak, the, 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 uh, the Rambam. The Rambam says that, um, 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 the the Raman says that if meat, if down the bus the bisra, um, which means these are like worms that come out of the out of the meat, so. Um, That that the Rama says if um, that if it was um, a live animal, then you shechted it, it's permitted. But if it's on the grew on the meat itself, right, um, that it's not permitted, and it's considered um, and, and remains also. So the, the Rambam is in Perk Beis from Hilchus Machalos Asuras. I'll just read the Lashon of Tolas and Nimtzah Babasa Asura. Aval dog sheetliyah, but if it's a, if it's fish that became wormy, hat Tolas Muteres, and this is based on the Gemara and Chulin. Um, but the Rambam holds that downy the worms in the meat are also. Um, And the, the reason is because it must says because the shechita on the animal is matter, is matter the, uh, these, these worms, the, the downy. However, fish that don't require shechita, um, they're mutter independently. Um, um, so the, in, t- in terms of explaining, this Rambam, um, I just want to quote that with Yaakov Kana Shapira in his Save the Navas Yaakov, he quotes from his relative, Reb Chaim Briska. He asks a question like this. We know there's, a, there's, there's machleks in the Bible whether Uba Yerech Imo, Olav Uba, or Eno Yerech Imo. 
meanly, namely, is the uber, the embryo in the mother, is it considered like part of the, part of the mother, look like another limb or organ of the mother, or is it independent? Um, and the halach is if you shecht an animal that's pregnant, so the, the embryo is also mutter, and even after, if it survived and was born, it's prancing around, that really, medievalist, it doesn't require shechita. The shechita that's required is only, is only midrabon. So, so he asks, um, why do you need a special pasuk to tell us that Allah of Ben Pekua, if Eva, if, if Uba Yerachimo applies, you know, to, and it's part of the animal, the Uba, so of course, just like the shechita, um, was mat to all parts of the animal. The rest of the Vasa was mat to the Uber as well. Um, um, so that's the question that he asks. Um, so, so he, he says, um, that um, he says it's and he says he says it's he thinks it's a obvious of a poshut that if you would take a piece of meat that was shchuto, um and from that you would create a new somehow a new animal that it would, would certainly require shchito. Um, and, and because it would be considered like a completely new a, a so he says as long as the uber is in inside the mother so then we say it's but after it's it, it's born it's so then it's considered an independent animal and the shechita um, if not you need a special to tell us that it's mutter. Um, and he quotes that he spoke to, um, he said that he spoke to his cover, and I'll just quote what he says. My relative, the he brings a proof because the Ramam says that Dani de Bistra, um, that if they were, if they developed after the Shrita, they're also. It, because then if it's after the Shrita, they're no longer considered an independent, um, um, that now if it's after the Shrita, they're considered independent and they're no longer related to the previous Shrita. So this is the question that I posed to Ravasha Weiss. That according to this, according to that Rambam, th- this technology wouldn't work because this would be essentially the same. The way the Chaim explained it is Dani de Bisra. You're taking these um, s- stem cells that are now separate from the animal, and um, and using them um, independent of the animal to grow them, and it would be the equivalent of the of the, the Dani, the Bista, the worms that, that propagated after the Shrita, 
and the Rabbam thinks that they're that they're that they're also. So that interpretation of the Rambam, like the, the Navas Yaakov quotes um, from Abchaim, I think you know would be somewhat problematic. The thing that saves us is the Shulchan Aruch doesn't pass him like that Rambam. Um, so if 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 we go with the Psaq of the Shulchan Aruch, which we generally do, then that you know this technology of using stem cells and growing them outside since it's coming from an animal that's already geshochtim, will be permitted. I, I just want to mention, so um, Rav Asher Weiss had some other mahalchim, maybe to distinguish between the case of Dan and the Bishra, but he also said, well, it could be that, you know, the Tzad Hetu is, but the, the, this is the opinion of the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch doesn't seem to paskin like this Rambam. The, the, there is one approach, which I think is frankly completely wrong. Rabbi Ramon referenced it, some people have written, and I think I'm, I'm raising it because in, in the context of the new Supreme Court ruling that seems to be, you know, the draft that has been, everybody's been speaking about. The Gemara says, as relates to um, an abortion, that if um, if the, the abortion is done, you know, the first 40 days of the development of the child, it's, 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 it's you wouldn't be chayiv for Lo Sirtuch or for it's it's because it's my Yalm. It's just uh, it's just water. In other words, it hasn't formed enough to be considered a, a uh, an Uber. But I think that has absolutely nothing to do with this issue that we're talking about. When the most speak about my Alma, it means to say as relates to the Allah that's dealing with of the prohibition of doing abortion of Lo Sirtuch. It's not dealing at all. Of course, it's not, it's not water. It means to say that the Uber hasn't developed enough. And some people have even gone so far as to say, well, if it's Maiba Alma, you could even take stem cells at an early stage from a pig and, you know, synthetic and create a pig in this fashion. And that would be permitted as well. I think the, the association one to the next is simply, it's, it's simply, it's, it's, it's simply wrong. The Gemara is only dealing with the loch of Lausirza and and the and the prohibition, whatever the, of um, of um, of of abortion, but and saying that if, if the first stage of the pregnancy, which is very early, is um, the, the the Uber has not yet it's not viable, hasn't developed enough. Uh, the Supreme Court, you know, in Roe versus Wade, if they were looking for a standard in terms of of abortion. That might, um, that might be the right the right standard for for what it should be considered, but that that should be used in any way as a source to permit this program, I think is simply mistaken. But as I said, there are many reasons, and and Rabbi Mon has has outlined them. It's it's one it's a program that has enormous potential in the chuvas that we have I, I, with with. with, with Russia Weiss and Rav Shechter, both of them thought that this program would be permitted. Um, but we were talking about taking stem cells from a slaughtered animal, not one that has not been slaughtered, and let, because it would require shechita, or maybe creating a system with a, which Rabbi Ramon also referenced of a Ben Pekur. A Ben Pekur, again, is an animal where the mother was slaughtered and the, the Uber, the, you know, survived. And now is 
alive. So there the shechita is, it, it, it may, if you take things from that, maybe the shechita would be permitted. We have to see whether that on a, um, on a, you know, technological basis would, or simply in terms of the economy of size that would be, would be required, whether that would work. But there are other things that Ramon has suggested in terms of the eggs and all these other things that, as you said, have to be very carefully reviewed, which um, at Machon Lev they, they are doing. And uh, the potential for this is, is, as I began at the very beginning, is extremely important. It's not that there are no question marks. There are many question marks related to it. Um, but there, there may be solutions. It seems that there are solutions. But um, I think one thing we absolutely have to take off the table is this notion that you can just take from anything because it's my Maya Baalma. It's, I think, completely not relevant. I spoke to Rabbi Shecht about it. He also thought very strongly about that. Um, I, I, I just, I think my time is up. So I just want to mention, you know, we're going through this crisis in a completely different way right now. Many of you know that the OU made a decision not to give an OU to synthetic plant-based pork. That is a purely a marketing decision. Marketing in the sense only means to say that we're trying to, you know, be sensitive to the feelings because many people, and that's specifically by pork because it's related to chasid, it's a very strong, you know, visceral reaction against something that looks like pork, or tastes like pork, even if it's completely plant-based. In api halacha, there really is nothing that's wrong with it. If it's that to say, the Gemara tells us in Hulin that uh, Yalta said that everything that the Torah asks or many things the Torah asks it has, we have the taste of it in a permitted fashion. The Torah asks dam, blood, and you can eat covered. You can eat um, liver that has, you know, that has a similar taste if it's properly prepared. And and similarly, Moa says even about Chaza, that there's a fish, you know, uh, called Shibuta, that has an identical taste to, uh, to, to Chaza or similar to Chaza. So if we can find solutions, Rafi Alocha are correct, we should. And, uh, and uh, you know, the approaches, some of them that, uh, that Rafi Mon has mentioned, um, you know, we're reviewing also at the OU. But the, but the exciting thing is what, where technology has brought us. And especially in this age, it's really important. I was recently, this is actually right before the COVID, I was at a conference. And one of the things that this was, you know, the scientists, they were talking about this was, you know, general conference. It was not the people presenting weren't Jewish. But what they were talking about because of climate change and the shrieking amount of area and growing population, where are we going to get a protein? And they were talking about, you know, the other that in the future what we're going to have to look for is in terms of insects and so on. But this technology may be one of the solutions, play an important role in that in the growing crisis because of climate change in terms of sources of, of finding sources of protein and doing it in a fashion that doesn't impact negatively on on the on the uh, environment. So I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you, Robert Danak. This marks the conclusion of our 15th annual Medical Ethics Society Conference. Thank you to all the speakers and to everyone who joined us. We hope to see you all at our conferences in the coming years.